Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Are we alive? Yes, alive and well. It is 2014, isn't it? It just it seems strange to say that. I'll probably need some accountability with everybody helping me uh, to be reminded that it is a new year, writing it you know, on checks and such. Okay, might need a little bit of help. But I trust that everyone had a great New Year's this week, time with family and friends, blessed and encouraged you. We were uh, very encouraged, Victoria and I were, because we had some of the CBC young adults uh, come over to our house on New Year's Day. And then we were also blessed to hang out on New Year's Eve at the Furco house, which was a lot of fun. And so um, Doreen can, Tom, I'm surprised you're not larger than you are, that she can put some food on that table and we were blessed, so thank you so much. Uh, let Doreen know that the food was incredible, and thank you for hosting us. And it was at one point on New Year's Eve, I recall sitting there watching the TV as the ball was preparing to drop at Times Square on the East Coast, and they were playing some good old-fashioned music videos from the 1980s, and they certainly made me laugh. The poofy 80s hairstyles with the digitally enhanced music with, you know, the parachute pants and the tight-rolled jeans. Tight-rolled jeans and the Reebok pump, high-top sneakers. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. Where you get such a young church. Well, it was a little bit too much for me. And you have to draw the line somewhere with 80s stuff. And I draw the line with spandex shorts, okay? Who came up with that fashion statement? My goodness. And then you have um, the VCR tapes that you had the joy of blowing the dust off of. You'd blow in them so the dust wouldn't be on the tape. So when you put it in the VCR, it wouldn't throw the tracking off on the VCR. Oh, yeah. Crazy times in the 80s. Mr. T was championing uh, championing his own cereal. Uh, bon Jovi was living on a prayer, right? And everyone was in the movie theaters watching E.T. phone home as they cried together. All the boys were playing Pac-Man, and all the girls were playing with Cabbage Patch dolls. And I remember sitting by Tom, and we were having this conversation, I think why uh, a Gloria Estefan video from the 80s was playing in the, in the background, And you said, I can't believe that it's been over 30 years. Maybe you've had a similar experience as you're looking through a family photo album that takes you back, causes you to reminisce. Maybe it's a high school yearbook or something, but it it draws out the question, and many adults ask the question when they get older, where has the time gone? It's a common question. Life does go fast. And the journey from the womb to the tomb is described in biblical terms as a vapor. We're indeed here today and gone tomorrow. And as William Penn aptly stated, time is what we want most, but we use worst. Over the course of history, many people have offered different perspectives about time some famous and some unknown. And here are some quotes. Men have talked of killing time while time 
quietly kills them. Benjamin Franklin said, time is money. How about this quote? Time is the coin of your life. It is the only coin you have, and only you can determine how it will be spent. Be careful lest you let other people spend it for you. C.S. Lewis had this to say, The future is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour. Whatever he does, whoever he is. If there's one thing that every human being shares, it's the confines of the unchangeable clock, God's clock. We cannot add any more time than God has allotted to us in a 24-hour day. And Jesus even reminds us of this reality in Matthew chapter 6. And he asks the question, who can add a single hour to their life? And he's instructing us not to worry. As we consider the reality that our lives are on a ticking clock, it shouldn't surprise us that God has something to say about how we use our time. And we don't want to miss it. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 and I'll be reading and teaching this week from the English Standard Version. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21, say this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The title of today's message is is destroying dissipation. And dissipation means to be wasteful. If you do not put insulation into your home, the air conditioning or the heat, depending on the time of the year, will dissipate from your house. If you do not budget your finances and make a financial plan and spend your money carelessly, you will suffer from financial dissipation. And dissipation really boils down to just bad stewardship. And God calls us to be good stewards of our time. In last week's sermon, God's Word instructed us and encouraged us to be good stewards of the gifts that we were given, right? With the unchanging resolution that we saw in 1 Peter chapter 4. And this week's message is very fitting for the new year as well. As we consider what God's Word says about the use of of our time. Our passage, as the sermon proposition in your bulletin should indicate, gives us five commands of wisdom to destroy dissipation. And there should be some space in there for you to write down each of these commands as we get the opportunity today to tackle them together. And the first command of wisdom comes in verses 15 and 16 where they say this, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because 
the days are evil. A number of the translations, uh, uh, English translations, start out in verse 15 with the word therefore, and it makes us uh, think that we need to connect back, right? You've heard this taught before, I'm sure, if, the, there is, if there's a therefore, what's it therefore? This is the question that they teach us sometimes. And it, it, it gives an indication that it's connecting us back to the previous paragraph. But the reality is that this is an entirely new section in Paul's train of thought, okay? And a clue for the major breaks in Ephesians is the imperative that we're given to walk, the Greek imperative word that's translated walk in our English Bibles. And since I knew we wouldn't have time to consider a detailed background of the letter, I'm going to blend some of that in. And because we won't have to consider the entire context of the passage, we did provide an outline of Ephesians for you in the bulletin so that you can see where our passage fits inside the book. So we start here with these two verses. And the reality is that we're only given one command in these verses. When you boil the Greek down to the most literal English translation, the command is saying this. Look carefully as you are walking. That is command number one. Look carefully as you are walking. We need spiritual lenses on our eyes that can help us detect the dangers that we'll encounter when we're walking through this path of life. And we live in a fallen and broken world filled, filled with spiritual landmines. And the first command of wisdom, it calls us to attention. It's like in the military, snap up. Attention. Sharpen your eyes spiritually. And then it goes on to describe how we do that in two distinct ways. First it says, not as unwise but as wise. And the Greek word translated wise here in English refers to true insight into known facts, okay? And it's connected to the spiritual insights about the nature of God's plan. And God has given us plenty of insights about his plan for instructing us on how we need to walk, especially in the walk sections of the letter to the Ephesian churches that was written by Paul to all the surrounding letters. It's called an encyclical letter. It made its way all around the churches in Ephesus. A second description of how we look carefully and how we consider the way that we are walking is by taking advantage of the opportunities. And Paul uses the same words in the sister letter of Ephesians, which is Colossians. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 5 of Colossians, he calls believers to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And this is contrasted with the reality because the days are evil. And you can see a couple contrasts. You have the wise contrasted with the unwise, followed by good opportunities contrasted with evil days. And the evil days here aren't just pointing to a certain time period, all right? They're not intended to point to um, a dispensation or a time period, but they're reflecting the heart of mankind and the wickedness that continue to be so prevalent on the earth. It refers to that which is ethically bad or evil or wicked with references to people, their thoughts, their deeds, 
and actions. And as a result, we need to be spiritually aware of our surroundings. We can't just walk in any speed or any direction spiritually. We need to consider our environment. One of my most distinct college memories was back at Purdue University when I was sitting in between classes waiting for the next class to start, and I was looking out of the class in 1950, a big lecture hall, there's some windows, and there was a guy walking. He was a ROTC guy who was dressed in his Class A uniform very nicely, dressed to the T, right? Had uh, those shiny black uh, chloroform shoes that I don't think were made for the snow and the ice that was all over the concrete that day on the sidewalks. And Tom and Doreen will let you know, you know, it's in, Indiana's in the middle of cornfields in the central part of Indiana, okay? Um, not many beaches within reach. Not too many um, exciting landmarks to go see. There's corn, okay? And as the weather warms back up and then as it cools off at night, there'll be a lot of freezing. So there's a lot of ice. And this guy was walking very quickly to class. And I found out later that ROTC people aren't, allowed to run in their uniform. It disgraces their uniform, but they can walk as fast as they can. And this guy was walking really, really quickly to class, and all of a sudden, he slipped and hit a patch of ice, and he fell. And great was his fall. And he fell back, and thankfully, he was wearing, he had a backpack on because that broke his fall. Otherwise, the first thing that was going to hit was the back of his head on that icy concrete. And this guy who obviously appeared uh, late was in such a hurry. And I have a question for you. Do you think this guy gave any regard to the slick, hazardous conditions that he was walking on? I assure you that he did not. Now let me ask you another question. If this man was deployed into military service, service and he was Uh, sent out to Iraq or Afghanistan, and he was assigned to walk down a road in the country on enemy territory, a land that could be filled with landmines or IEDs, explosive devices embedded under the ground, do you think that he might walk a little bit more cautiously? What do you think? You with me? I think he might elevate just his, his degree of awareness up just a couple notches. Well, what's the point? As believers, we're always on enemy soil on this side of the cross. It doesn't matter if we're in a familiar setting in our homes or a foreign land. And God wants us to look carefully how we are walking. God wants us spiritually to be observant wherever we are. He wants us to look carefully, not carelessly, how we walk in this life. And this sin-filled, lust-infested world is filled with spiritual landmines and slippery slopes. If you want to destroy dissipation, then look carefully how you are walking. Because if you don't, you're going to step on a landmine. And that can cause a major problem. And depending on the landmine, It can cause serious spiritual injury for a while. For a while. It's going to take some time to recover. 
And I want to talk about applying this first command in a very unique and perhaps a much-needed way in the new year. I want to talk about the Internet. Is the Internet a great resource to accomplish a lot of good things? Is it? Yes, of course. Listen to sermons online. You can control your banking online. You pay bills online. You can book airline tickets online. You can buy your... uh, buy anything online, right? And have it delivered straight to the house, even your groceries, if you would want to. It's filled with a lot of good things. Most certainly is. But is the internet also filled with landmines and satanic temptations? Is it? It is. It most certainly is. Can I offer three points of counsel on how we can apply this verse, this command specifically to this area of our lives. And parents, this will serve you well as you consider how you want to shepherd your children, or for those of you that have grandchildren, how you can shepherd them as well. Three rules of the internet based on the wisdom of Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Number one, don't ever surf the internet. Don't ever surf the internet. What do I mean by surf? When I, don't ever go onto the internet casually with the purpose of just seeing where it might take you. Don't ever do that. Develop the habit or discipline of planning your internet time. You plan your time. You need to go online. You need to check your Facebook. Check your Facebook. You need to go on and you need to check your email. Make a plan in your mind to go on there and check your email. You need to do some research for school. You need to uh, book a flight. Make a plan to go on the internet and then get off. Don't surf online. Listen to me. Do not surf online. Don't do it. 80% of the traffic, internet traffic, designed on the internet is to push you towards websites that you do not want to go to, that you do not want your mind to be filled with. 80% plan your time. That is God's wisdom from Ephesians 5.15. Second rule, be in the presence of others when on the internet, okay? And we're going to talk about accountability later, but if I could just use the words of Josh Joshua Harris, in his book, uh, Not Even a Hint, and he, he wrote another uh, book later. Um, can't remember the title exactly, but he basically said this, a lone ranger is a dead ranger when it comes to being online alone. A lone ranger is a dead ranger. And I'll just talk to our young adults. If, if I was single, living in the time that we're living in, I would not have internet in my house. I just, I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't. I would use it at work. I would go to Starbucks, connect with free Wi-Fi there. I just would not even open up that opportunity. That's, that's just me. I'm not uh, saying that that's what you have to do. But I think that there's real wisdom in not being alone. It doesn't mean, make sure you catch what I'm saying, it doesn't mean that you can't have privacy. It doesn't mean that you, you, um, you can't do write a private email or do um, some stuff that, you, it, that doesn't relate to other people. But what it does is it allows you to have the accountability that if someone were to come in the room, and we know that God's always watching. It's not about the accountability or the fear of man. It's about 
looking at the wisdom that God would have us walk in and using other people to help us honor him with how we use the internet. Rule number three, finally, but most importantly, log off the internet immediately if any lustful thought comes into your mind, okay? You log off immediately and you grab a hold of Philippians 4.8, okay? Many people think that it's a put-off, put-on mentality, right? But as we saw in Ephesians 4 last week, it's actually a put-off, renew your mind, and then put on Christ. And you grab a hold of Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, good reputation, whatever is excellent or worthy of praise, we dwell, we think about such things. That's where our minds are in Christ. What does WWW stand for anyway? The world wide web. And there are people all over this planet who are entangled in it. And it's designed specifically for the purpose by the enemy for dissipation in many ways. Did I say there were some good things? Yes. But so much of it entangles people. And God's wisdom sets us free. And this command applies to all situations of life. In the sport of football, they taught us whenever you were on the football field to keep your head on, the, on a swivel. You were always looking on the football field when you were playing. Why? Because if you didn't, you know what happened? You get blindsided. Somebody would come by and clean your clock just like that. You'd be, you'd be laid out. Spiritually, the path of wisdom as we approach life every day is to keep our head on a swivel. We constantly are looking and evaluating the environment that we're in. We don't want to be blindsided at work. We don't want to be blindsided at school or at the gym or just driving down the road from one place to another. And just like a defensive driving course that teaches you to anticipate obstacles, so God calls us spiritually to look carefully how we are walking just in case something pulls out in front of us, right? It happens. And God wants us to be prepared. And there are many applications for what it means to look carefully as you walk, and the commands of wisdom will continue to guide our steps. We're studying five commands of wisdom to destroy dissipation. The first command is to look carefully as you are walking. Our second and third commands are found in verse 17. And we will consider them together because the Greek has them well connected. Verse 17 says this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The word therefore in this instance is referring back to verse 16. It could also be translated on an account of this. And this present active imperative verb here could also be translated Make it your habit not to become foolish. That's what I would write down in my outline. Make it your habit not to become foolish. And what God's word is saying is believers are to watch and walk 
carefully as wise people, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And for this reason, or on an account of this, we are urged not to enter into the condition of foolishness. And the careless believer can easily be enticed by the lowercase God of this world, the God of this age, to become foolish and not apply wisdom. And this command is actually contrasted with the second command, and it's combined with a conjunction in the Greek. Um, Allah in the Greek is the strongest adversative that you can put between uh, a structure in English grammar. It's the strongest um, way to set up a contrast. And so the third command is to understand what the will of the Lord is, which is also a present active imperative. So similar to our second command, it can be translated like this. Do not make it your habit to become foolish, but rather, or in contrast, make it your habit to understand or comprehend the will of God. Both commands in this verse as well as our next verse, um, they sit on... The, the Allah, they sit on that conjunction and they're like a teeter-totter. Does everybody remember the seesaw or the teeter-totter? Anyone out on the playground, right? What is it? It's basically a board, right? It's a board that's um, attached to a fulcrum or a pivot point, right? And one side goes up and the other side goes down, right? And it's impossible for both sides to go up at the same time. And it's impossible for both sides to go down at the same time. What would happen? It wouldn't function. The board would break. And this is a very appropriate picture as we consider this verse and the next. Our obedience to these commands allows the teeter-totter to function in harmony. And when we talk about one command here, by implication, we're talking about the other. We cannot pursue foolishness and God's desired will, which is his wisdom, simultaneously. By divine design, it does not work. God's will is anti-foolishness. God's will is anti-dissipation. And it's God's will that we don't become foolish and allow the foolish things of this world to hijack the precious time that he's granted to us in our lives. And we know what that foolishness looks like. Foolishness will entice college students to, and high school students, junior high students to sit around and to play. Actually, gamers now go into their 30s, 40s, and 50s and sit around and play hours and hours of video games. And foolishness entices us to sit in front of the TV for hours or the internet for hours upon hours. Foolishness could entice us to rent a movie on every night of the week. Foolishness entices us to have our minds focus on earthly matters instead of spiritual matters. Nicer clothes, nicer cars, bigger houses, more money, more money, more money. And this is Matthew 6, 24 all the way. No one can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot. And you cannot serve 
God and foolishness. You can't. And I want to be sensitive here because the things that I've just mentioned aren't necessarily all bad. But they can cause us to become foolish if and when we allow our lives to be consumed by something. And foolishness creeps in like a weed. And Victoria and I lived in North Carolina, as you know, for four years, and we saw so many trees that were killed by vines. Weedy vines. And you know how they work? You know how they kill trees? They start at the base and they work their way up slowly. They begin to wrap themselves around the tree. And they keep growing. And it doesn't happen quickly, but slowly. That vine just starts up the base until it consumes the whole tree. And you know, how, many people don't know this, but you know how they, there's two ways that they actually kill trees. The first way is that um, areas where there's a large amount of snowfall, the, the, the leaves of the vines will catch that additional weight and it ends up toppling the tree. And it causes the tree to, to, to break and ends up killing the tree. This is, man, what a spiritual lesson for us. This is such a spiritual lesson. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What are the things that encumber us? What are the sins which so easily entangle us? Are they not foolishness? Are they not foolishness? Are they not sometimes subtle things that can turn into excessive things that weigh us down and drive us towards dissipation? Well, there's a second way that those vines kill the trees. Check this out. They grow and they get so full that they end up shading the tree and trees need light in order to live. And so the vines end up covering them and the light that the trees so desperately need isn't able to reach them. And progressively, the vines rob the trees of the light that they need. And this happens to Christians as well. The weeds of this world can attack us at the base. And they can wrap around. They can wrap around us and they can crawl into our lives. And you know what happens? We all know what happens. Before you know it, there's absolutely no time to read your Bible. Before you know it, there's absolutely no time to pray. Before you know it, there's absolutely no time to serve the church or to serve other people. There's no time to go to a care group during the week. There's no time. There's no time to make disciples. It's gone. And foolishness is a snare. And it creeps into our life like a weed. But God's Word rescues us from it. And we're going to see that. We're studying five commands of wisdom to destroy dissipation. 
and we've studied two of them, and our third command of wisdom is on the other side of the teeter-totter in verse 17. Make it your habit to understand what the will of the Lord is. If the antithesis of God's will is foolishness, then pursuing what is his will, right? It's, it's, it's wisdom, right? We pursue wisdom. Wisdom is the weed killer. It is. And walking in wisdom is the theme of this entire passage. We're called to walk. In, in chapter 5, we're called at the beginning in verses 1 through 5, we're called to walk in light or walk in purity. This is a great, it's, it's a great chapter. Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible um, for a number of reasons, but I won't share all those right now. But we're called to walk in light in the opening five verses. And then we're called to walk in love in Ephesians 6 through 14. And then when we get to our passage today, we're called to walk in wisdom as we destroy dissipation. God's will has the potential of being a pretty weighty subject. And some Christians really struggle to understand it. And so we need to have just a little mini-theology lesson right here at this point to make sure that we comprehend it. After all, verse 17 is saying this, make it your habit to understand what the will of the Lord is. And when we talk about the Lord's will, we're actually talking about two aspects. And the first aspect of God's will is called His decreed or His decorative will. Some theologians have also referred to it as His secret will because not every aspect is known to us. His decreed will includes all the events of history that have taken place in the past and all the events that will take place in the future that will come about. And even the crucifixion and the death of his son by lawless men was something that God predetermined or decreed according to Acts 2.23. Well, the second aspect of God's will is called his moral will or his desired will. And some theologians have called it his revealed will because the moral standards in Scripture are revealed to us in the Bible. And so we have two aspects. We, I use the D words, his decreed will and his desired will. That's just how I, how I remember it best. And God's desired will is what verse 17 in our passage today is referring to. God's desired will for us fills the pages of Scripture. And just a brief survey of me just sharing some of these passages that share God's will, it's, it's, it's pretty profound how many there are. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18 say this, Rejoice always, pray continually, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, we had a chance to look at this last week. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time 
in the flesh to, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh no longer for the evil lusts of men, but for the will of God. And certainly we get to add Ephesians 5.17 to our arsenal today. And a great starting place for our application of this command is to spend some time studying and meditating on the will of God verses. What might the Lord allow us to see just by reflecting on the will of God verses? I'm willing to bet, wager, you will be surprised. You will be su- surprised. Trust me, spiritual growth awaits when you reflect on them. It just does. It just does. We're studying five commands of wisdom to destroy dissipation. We have covered three out of five commands so far. Command number one instructs us to look carefully as you are walking. Command number two, make it your habit not to become foolish. Command number three, make it your habit to understand what the will of God is. And our final two commands are in another teeter-totter verse in verse 18, which says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So here we have our teeter-totter again. Not get drunk with wine on one, okay? But be filled with the Spirit on the other. And we'll get to the commands in just a second, but I do want to draw your attention to the and the conjunction at the beginning of the sentence because it sets the stage of verse 18 by linking us back to the contrast that we've just studied between foolishness and understanding. Okay? Now, the first command of verse 18, which again is a present active imperative, means that it could be translated, make it your habit not to get drunk. And why would Paul write this? Well, there's no indication that there were people in Ephesus that were struggling in this area like the Corinthians were because Paul even mentioned and gave them a warning and instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay? But here God used Paul to record a charge to them not to allow such a habit to come into their lives. And this command doesn't condemn alcohol or its use but it's intended to warn of the foolishness that accompanies excessive drinking. And you probably won't believe this, but during Paul's day, a common struggle was for people to drink too much alcohol. Probably not going to believe that. Thankfully, our culture does not struggle with the same thing, okay? We're good there. Um, there's no, no, no real struggles there. Not in that arena. We know, right? Bars and liquor stores are as common as banks and grocery stores in just about every town or every city that you visit. And the truth of the matter is, this is the example that God led Paul to record. And I'm sure that there are plenty of other examples that God could have led Paul to use. But he had him pick this one. And just like the instructing Savior using a physical reality to teach a spiritual lesson, I think we'll gain a sense of that here. In our immediate context, Paul is encouraging believers to walk in wisdom. And I find it humorous. I find it funny that he picked drunkenness as the form of dissipation. 
How well do drunk people walk? How many foolish decisions are made by intoxicated people? What kind of testimony do drunk people have in our society? Typically, how productive are drunkards? should have said I find it ironic. I would find it funny. They're not very productive. And drunkenness, cross-culturally, has a reputation for dissipation or being wasteful. In fact, there's a common expression that's used among people who go out to get intoxicated. And they say this, I went out and I got wasted. I went out and I got wasted. And you want to know what? They're exactly right. They did. They went out and they got wasted. And there was nothing meaningful that came about as a result of them going to do that. There was nothing that was going to be applauded for the fact that you went out and got wasted. And you changed the world. And you, yeah, you've really blessed somebody. There's all kinds of things that are attached with it. The word translated dissipation can also be translated debauchery or reckless living. And Webster offers a clear definition for dissipation. The act of using all or a lot of something in a foolish way. And in this case, it's alcohol. Did you know that nearly 80% of those who are in jail cells or who are incarcerated in prison were either drunk or high on a substance at the time of their offense. Their lives, sadly, are getting wasted too. And it's very easy for me, and it might be easy for you as well, to point the finger at drunkenness. Yet I think that if we're honest, we can pick our form of dissipation, right? We can get drunk with Sports Center. (laughs) We can get drunk with our financial portfolio. We can get drunk with Facebook. We can get drunk with shopping, our careers, physical fitness, entertainment, or one or two thousand other things. Okay, There's plenty to go around. And anything in worldly excess is dissipation. Yes, we do need moderation to avoid dissipation but even more than that we need our last command in verse 18 and this brings us to our fifth and final command of wisdom to destroy dissipation on the other side of the teeter-totter in verse 18 it says do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation okay don't make it your habit to get drunk with wine but rather be filled by the spirit what does it mean to be filled with the spirit maybe your bible translation says in the spirit or by the Spirit. And while I was going to the seminary, and Sam, you'll get to experience this, in one of your classes, they'll actually assign you to write an entire paper on Ephesians 5.18. And the reason that they do that is because there is a Greek preposition in that verse that comes um, uh, right before uh, the word that we translate in English, spirit. And that, uh, that Greek preposition can be translated in our English as in, with, or by. 
And so depending on what preposition used, it has very big implications. And so this is why it's given an assignment to everyone who attends the seminary. And I'm going to resist the temptation to share all those implications with you, okay, this morning. I'm going to resist that temptation. But if I've scratched an itch, or there's an itch to be scratched, and you want to dig a little deeper, I want to suggest that um, there's a great commentary. A man spent 25 years studying the book of Ephesians. His name is Harold Honer, and it's an excellent exegetical commentary if Ephesians is a book that you really are passionate about. It's a great, great resource. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Dr. MacArthur, in his commentary, provides some great help by sharing what it does not mean first. He basically says this, being Spirit-filled is not a dramatic, esoteric experience. Being Spirit-filled is not an act of the flesh which has God's approval. It's not the same as possessing or being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not a progress of progressively receiving the Holy Spirit by degrees or in doses. It's not the same as baptism of the Spirit. It's not the same as being sealed or secured by the Spirit. So what does it mean? Unlike the previous commands that we received in this passage, this command is not a present active imperative. And consequently, we can't say, um, make it your habit to be filled with the Spirit. We can't say that. That would be inaccurate. And here's why. It's a present passive imperative. And if it were active, then it would encourage us that believers would be the ones doing the filling. But it's not. The Holy Spirit is the one doing the filling. So a good rendering of the command is be filled. Or you could actually say, be being kept filled. And Dr. MacArthur says it this way, being filled involves day by day, moment by moment, submission to the Spirit's control. The passive aspect indicates that it's not something we do, but that we allow to be done to us. And the filling is entirely the work of the Spirit Himself. But He works through our willing submission. The present aspect of the command indicates that we cannot rely on past fillings nor live in the expectation of future fillings. We can rejoice in past fillings and hope for future fillings, but we can live only in present fillings. Strong words from a strong teacher. And if I could simplify what is communicated, what's just been communicated, it's this. Being filled with the Spirit is always a present reality, okay? We, when we're filled with the Spirit, it's talking about where we're at in reality, okay? And, and Dr. MacArthur finished with this example. He said, the mark of a good marriage is not love and devotion the husband and wife have had in the past, as meaningful and lovely as that may have been, nor is it the love and devotion they hope to have in the future, The strength of their marriage is the love and devotion they have for each other in the present. And that really boils it down. Or if we want to go back to the the reality of dissipation, as liquor controls the life of a drunkard, the Spirit of God should control the life of the believer. And so what does the Spirit-filled 
life look like? I'm so glad that you asked. With a burst of energy, at the end of the sermon, you said, Pastor John, please preach it. What does the Spirit-filled life look like? What does it look like? Well, in verses 19 through 21, there are five present participles that support the command to be filled with the Spirit. And they're intended to provide evidence or realities of a Spirit-filled life. The first one is in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The second is singing. The third is making melody with your heart to the Lord. The fourth one is always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And the fifth one, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And I wish that time allowed us to break down each of these, and we will have to do it next Sunday. And I've always wanted to say that. I've always wanted to say, next Sunday we'll have the opportunity. I, I know who's preaching next week. Um, we will have an opportunity next Sunday to look at the realities of the Spirit-filled life together. Well, pastor and author John Piper has written a book titled, Don't Waste Your Life. And his inspiration for writing this book, he shares was an old man whom Piper's father had witnessed to after a church service that John Piper remembered seeing. And the man in his late 70s or early 80s realized that his entire life had been consumed with Christless pursuits and living for the foolish things of this world. And after being washed in the forgiveness of the Gospel, all he could do was put his hands up to his face and hold his face and keep repeating, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. In tears. What is so profound about the story to me is that immediately after God unveiled the truth of the Gospel, He didn't dwell on the reality that his debt had been paid. He didn't dwell on the reality that he was going to spend an eternity with Christ. He immediately became burdened. He immediately carried a burden that he hadn't lived a life that was spent for the glory of Christ. And what do you think? What do you think a man... If this man could come back and he could come talk to a Bible-believing church just like the one that we have right here, blessed with a boatload of young families and young single adults sprinkled with a few spring chickens in their 50s and 60s. What would a man who had that experience, what would he come say to our church? We can only speculate. We can only speculate. But you want to know what I think he would say? I think he'd say something like this. Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of your time that you've been given because the days are evil. Don't make it your habit to be foolish. Don't be foolish like I was. 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine or all these other forms of dissipation that you might encounter. Listen to me. Listen to me. Don't do it. But be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing. Rejoice. Make melody in your heart. Always giving thanks. Always giving thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ and yes, even to the Father. And be subject to one another. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. May the testimony of this man who trusted in Christ at the end of his life also fuel our evangelism as we consider the reality that our lives are on a running clock. May we teach others about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And may we point them to Christ and share the reality that unless you've trusted in Christ and that you're walking with Christ, you're living a wasted life. It's dissipation, my friend. It's dissipation. But God can give you a fresh start. God can allow you to be born again and you can start living all over again. That by faith you can trust in Him and you can turn from living a life of dissipation and you can live to the glory of God. And praise God that He has given us His perspective and how we might use the remainder of our lives. And may the commands of wisdom in Ephesians chapter 5 encourage us greatly in 2014 and beyond. And may they serve, and may they serve as spiritual ammunition as we destroy dissipation together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us that you would allow us to receive the instruction from your word and that you would allow us to meditate on the reality that you have blessed us. You have caused our hearts to be born again. You have divinely given us new life. And as a result, we'll no longer chase the things of this world. We won't pursue the foolishness and the follies. And yet we need your help. It's a fitting place for us to end and to be reminded that we need to be spirit-filled. And I pray that as we continue to make progress as a church, that you would work in each heart and each mind corporately, so that this church family can be built stronger and that we would make the most of the time because the days are indeed evil. Help us to link arms. Help us to be willing to receive instruction from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that we don't waste our life. Oh, my heart breaks for him. Father, my heart breaks for that man crying into his hands. 
really realizing all the missed opportunities breaks my heart. And yet it also encourages me greatly that you've grabbed a hold of so many young people in this church and you've caused their hearts to be born again, to live for you and to make their lives count. So I just pray, Father, that you'll continue to allow us to do that in the most Christ-magnifying and honoring way. Allow us to make gospel progress in this city. Allow us to be salt and light as we disperse and leave this place to serve you and to serve your purposes. That is indeed wisdom. Father, we rejoice in you. We praise you. We love you. We're encouraged by you. We look forward to the time that we can gather again so that we can continue to grow in Christ-likeness. All to your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.